Namaste. I'm Reverend Wendy Craig Purcell here at the Unity Center in beautiful San Diego. Thank you so much for subscribing to this channel. Please make sure that you like the video you've just watched and consider making a contribution on our app or on our website. It's really easy to do. And thank you in advance for that support. It does make a difference. So today's lesson is about finding a place of rest in the middle. Finding a place of rest in the middle. Say that with me. Finding a place of rest in the middle. So this is a book that we've been exploring, and I hope you've picked up a copy of it. The author is Frank Ostaseski, and it is called The Five Invitations, Discovering What Death Can Teach Us About Living Life Fully. Frank is a co-founder of the Zen Hospice Project in the San Francisco Bay Area. And The Five in Invitations is a result of the work that he did sitting alongside those in the later stages of life, making their, trans their transition, and the lessons that he learned from them about living life more fully. And there were five that he pulled from his experience with them. The first that we looked at was the invitation, don't wait. And of course, when you know, if you think about somebody near the end of their life, they don't want to wait for anything, right? They want to be able to do whatever they can in those, those, last, those last moments. And oftentimes there can be a, a looking back with some regret for, why didn't I finish this? Why didn't I heal that relationship? Why didn't I do such and such? And so we learn, you know, don't wait. And the second invitation, the second major lesson he learned from them was welcome everything, push nothing away. And welcoming everything is really about the idea of recognizing, acknowledging, and being with what is. We don't have to like it, we don't have to agree with it, but we really can't move through it or beyond it until we are able to be with it first. And last week we looked at the idea of bringing our whole self, the third invitation, bringing our whole self into the experience. And it really has to do with being our authentic and complete selves, not just the roles that we play and the things and responsibilities that we have, but bringing our whole self, our authentic self, our soul, into each experience. And today is actually one of my favorite lessons or favorite invitations. And I say that because I feel there's much for me to learn in it and to try to practice with it. And it is the idea of finding a place of rest in the middle. Finding a place of rest in the middle. You know, I think many of us feel that we are very, very busy, and perhaps we really are. But one of the points that this invitation invites us to look at is how we hold that, how we think about that. Frank writes, what if finding that place of rest is actually not dependent upon changing outer circumstances? When I read that, I, I just took this big sigh of relief. Because for many of us, for many of us, we, care, we do carry a lot of responsibility. And while we may clearly prioritize what matters most, there can be a lot of things that matter a lot, right? And so there is this trying to figure out how do we 
show up? How do we be with the things that are ours to do and be with in a way that doesn't completely drain us and exhaust us? What if finding that place of rest is actually not dependent upon changing our out-of-circumstances? He writes, we often think of rest as something that will come to us when everything else in our lives is complete. At the end of the day, when we take a bath, once we go on holiday or get through our to-do lists, we imagine that we can only find rest by changing our circumstances. This invitation teaches us that we can find a place of rest within us without having to alter the conditions of our lives. It is experienced when we bring our full attention without distraction to this moment, to this activity. As I've been working with this idea this week and when I first started reading this book, I found that it's a very subtle but very powerful practice to actually be in the middle of doing whatever you are responsible for doing, holding whatever it is yours to do, but to do it in a way that you can find an inward calmness, an inward rest, an inward exhale in the process of it. And it is actually doable. It is actually doable, but it does take a very conscious and deliberate practice. He mentions the story of a a Zen monk vigorously sweeping the temple grounds, and another monk walks by and snips at him, too busy. And the one who's vigorously sweeping says, you should know there is one who is not too busy. And what that monk was trying to teach the one who snipped at him, too busy, by saying, you should know there is one who is not too busy, is that he was trying to convey the idea that even in the midst of something like sweeping the temple grounds, He could do that from a place of restfulness, rest in consciousness. And when I had read that little example, I thought, yes, I've tasted that. My husband teases me. In summertime, I can be out in our backyard with the skimmer for the pool and just skimming off the the flower petals and leaves and stuff that fall into the pool. And oftentimes he'll say, you know, I'll do that for you. I'll say, no, no, this is my meditation. It's like I'm doing something and it looks like, and to some people it would be a chore and they might be in a state of resentfulness of doing it, but it's like this Zen moment of just finding rest in the middle. So I really related to the author's statement, what if finding that place of rest is actually not dependent upon changing outer circumstances, but really is about how we hold it, how we are with it. Maybe as I shared the example of just skimming my pool, you can think of an example for yourself. And if you can, take that example and begin to cultivate it. Begin to the next time you're doing that, where outwardly it looks like you're busy, but inwardly you have found this place of rest, pay attention to yourself. Pay attention to the texture and the sense and the feeling of that, because when you become more familiar with it, that sense, that feeling, you'll be able to duplicate it within the context of other activities 
that you do, where maybe you find yourself wobbling off-center. He writes, rest, idleness, dormancy is not an indulgence. Take a deep breath into that one. It's not an indulgence. You know, we look at nature, there are lots of plants, lots of plants that go dormant in the winter, right? That period of dormancy is not idleness. That period of dormancy, dormancy is restorative. There are mammals that hibernate for long periods of time, right? And it's not a period of idleness. It's a period of restoration. We're no different. Our souls need a time of restoration. Our souls need a chance to catch up with our bodies that are forever in movement and forever in motion. Finding a place of rest in the middle of whatever we may be doing requires mindfulness. It requires bringing our attention fully into the moment and being fully present with whatever it is that we are doing without all the other noise and chatter going on in our heads. I like very much the analogy, or the metaphor rather, of the mind and the ocean. You think of the ocean and you think of the surface and the crashing of the waves. And if there's a lot of wind, then the crashing of the waves can be even stronger. If the tides are stronger, a lot of activity, right? And for many of us, our minds are like that. The untamed mind is very, very much like that, with thoughts swirling and swarming and, and life stresses adding to it. And then there's the stories that we tell us ourselves about the things that are happening to us or the things that are happening around us. It's like crashing waves. Meditation, and many people only live at that level of the mind. Meditation is a dipping a deliberate and conscious dipping beneath the turbulent surface of the water, beneath the turbulent surface of the chatter of the mind. In that process of dipping beneath that surface, much like in the ocean, beneath the crashing of the waves, you see the fish just swimming along. In meditation, the dipping beneath that chattering mind is the ability, the chatter is still up here, but we're at a level where the thoughts are flowing, but we're not grabbing them, or we're not pushing them away. We notice them, but we're not engaging with them. And then there's a deeper level yet, and that's a level where we're at the bottom, if you will, of complete calm, of complete calm. And that place, in consciousness may be a place that some of us only touch occasionally. To me, the great power is the willingness of the practice to dip beneath at least that chattering, turbulent surface. In order to do that, we need to have an understanding, both internally and externally, of what it is that contributes to that chatter the stresses of life, the stories we tell ourselves, the distractions. Frank writes, if we hope to find true rest, we need to see clearly the currents that disturb us. We could gain great insights into ourselves if we were to get clearer 
personally on what it is that disturbs us. What are the currents that take us off our center? Because if we don't know what it is that takes us off, it's more difficult to be able to quiet it and to make a different choice. In Buddhism, it's referred to as the three poisons that take us out of the current or that add to the turbulence of our mind. And those three poisons are are named differently, I think, in, in different traditions. But they can be named craving, aversion, and ignorance. Craving, aversion, ignorance, craving. We're wanting something that we don't have right now. And all of our energy is about how do we get that something. Aversion being resisting it, pushing it away. And ignorance being we just don't know any better. We're just not aware. And getting a sense of how what goes on inside of us individually, not taking anybody else's inventory, very personal, but getting a sense of, am I, in my life, do I tend to be under the influence of the poison of craving, of, of, of demanding, of a, a, attaching? Do I tend to be under the poison or the influence, the currents of aversion, of of hatred, of of defending, of resisting? Do I am I under the the poison, the influence of ignorance, where I just I don't want to see, I don't want to know, I don't want to look, I don't want to deal with it? When we can get clear with ourselves or clearer, clearer sounds like we do it and then we're done. But if we can get clearer with ourselves, then we are in a position of conscious power, I would call it, to make different choices. We can balance those poisons. We can balance craving or greed with generosity. We can balance aversion or defending with loving kindness, with compassion. We can balance ignorance with wisdom, with the deliberate effort to learn, to understand, to keep our eyes open. I don't personally like many of our old unity hymns, but gosh, one that always comes to my mind is hymn number 72. Open my eyes that I might see. I won't try to sing it for you, but open my eyes that I might see glimpses of truth thou hast for me. Open my eyes. Let me see. To the extent that I'm willing to really open my eyes and see, to the extent that you are willing to open your eyes and see. It is a pathway through ignorance. Mindfulness is also about the idea of minding the gap. Have you heard that expression before? Mind the gap, mind the gap. I first, I smile every time I I hear those words or I read those words because I think the very first time I came across them was on an international trip many, many years ago, a family trip to the United Kingdom. And we rode the London Tube a lot. And if you ride the London Tube right between the, the, where you, what do you call it, the platform, I guess, and the train, there is a... um, a, a space, right? And words written, mind the gap. They don't want you to fall in the gap. Why don't you want to fall in the gap? And then probably the next time was that I 
learned about the idea of mind the gap as it relates to meditation, and that's the point here, was through Deepak Chopra. That in meditation, the gap is that space after the out-breath and right before the next in-breath. To mind the gap. A powerful practice, if you've never done this, is in your meditation, in your mindful breathing, to really notice the gap. To be in the gap. To pay attention to the gap. To me, again, it is a place of power. It's a place of insight. It's a place of breaking that chatter of the mind. Take a deep breath in right now. And let that breath go. And then just notice the space before you take the next breath. And do it again. Take a deep breath in. And let that breath go. And notice the space before the next breath. It is in that space, I believe, that we open to wisdom. It is in that space, I believe, that we open to insight, that we open to awareness. And from that comes powerful, the potential for powerful change for ourselves and for others. The author also writes, mindfulness results in a non-judgmental way of being. It's not a cure-all, nor should it be an attempt to spiritual bypass. Have you heard that phrase before? Spiritual bypass. Mindfulness results in a non-judgmental way of being. It is not a cure-all, nor should it be an attempt to spiritual bypass. Spiritual bypass is a a term that was coined by psychologist John Wellward. And this is what what he writes about it. And I think this is a really powerful idea. And I think it's particularly important for us in metaphysics. Because the entry level of metaphysics, the entry, in my belief, in my experience, the entry level of unity, the entry level of science of mind, we work very much at a certain mental realm. Change your thought, change your life. What sometimes, and that's true, what sometimes happens at that more superficial level, though, is we put band-aids of affirmations or band-aids of denials on problems and situations, and we never actually deal with them. Does that make sense? Because dealing with them is the deeper inner work. This is what psychologist John Wellwood writes about the term spiritual bypass, a term he coined. We often use a goal of awakening or liberation to rationalize premature transcendence trying to rise above the raw and messy side of our humanness before we have fully made peace with it. Let me read that again. We often use the goal of awakening or liberation to rationalize premature transcendence, trying to rise above the raw and messy side of our humanness before we have fully made peace with it. 
Meditation is not meant to bypass our difficult histories or the unhealed emotional wounds of our past. Meditation doesn't solve our problems. It helps to dissolve them, to dissolve them, to dissolve them. And so this idea is circling back to the title, circling back to the invitation, which is to find a place of rest in the middle is less about physically disengaging from the activities of our lives and the responsibilities of our lives that we have determined our priorities and our hours to do. It's less about changing that, and it's everything about how we hold it. It's everything about the mindfulness practice we bring into it. It's everything about... Can we be engaged in the activity, fully present from a more quiet and calm mind? Does that make sense? Does that make sense? If that seems like a tall order, I want to circle you back to something I said earlier when I shared with you my personal example of just skimming the leaves off of our pool. Many of you, when I asked you, do you have such a thing you do where you lose yourself and you are at rest even though you're active. If you remember, the suggestion I made was to really study that, to, to pay attention to it, to notice it, and to try to get as familiar with that sense as you can. Because to the extent you're able to do that, to that extent you'll be able to transfer that into other experiences as well. I want to close with something from Ram Das that has to do with the, a description of finding this place of rest. How many of you are familiar with the late Ram Das? Right? Okay, Be Here Now, classic, classic book. He writes, after many years of undergoing psychoanalysis, teaching psychology, working as a psychotherapist, taking drugs, being in India, being a yogi, having a guru, and meditating for decades. As far as I can see, I haven't gotten rid of one neurosis. <laughs> that gives me some comfort. <laughs> Not one. The only thing that changed is that they don't define me anymore. There is less energy invested in my personality, so it's easier to change. My neuroses are not huge monsters anymore. Now they are like little schmoos that I invite over for tea. God bless you. Namaste. Namaste.